The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is Caroline Frost, whose new book is called Carry On Regardless, which is an affectionate history come revisiting of the great pillar of British cinema, the Carry On movies. Caroline, welcome. Now, first off, I guess, why, you know, why this book? Why now? Carry On feels like it's some, somewhat in the past to most of us. For sure. Thank you for having me. Um, I guess the official hook is that it is the 30th anniversary of Carry On Columbus, which was a rather sad whimper, not a bang exit from this extraordinary franchise. So that was the hook on which I was commissioned. But then I kicked off. I thought, OK, here we go. Going in, 30 films, Sid James's chuckle, Barbara Windsor's giggle, lots of doctors on trolleys careering down staircases. This isn't going to take me very long and it will be sweet and it will be affectionate. But then lockdown happened. The outside world was thrown into chaos and fear and all sorts of decisions and questions being asked of parliament and institutions. And I bunkered down to watch the films from their beginning, 1958, Carry On Sergeant, all the way through, 30 films later. And on the one hand, it was this wonderful totally fortunate, just accidentally blissful escape into a bygone age of capers. But something more interesting began to emerge. Watching them in linear fashion, I realised that they offered, obviously, almost a socio-cultural document on the history of that time. But I do think it has something relevant to offer us now. So I got more and more embedded. I was determined to keep an open mind about the things that people say. And it turned into quite a a rich project of discovery, but also fresh appreciation. And so as well as obviously hoping that people read my book for the history that these films provide, I am now a huge avowed champion of these films and I want more people to come and find them and rediscover them. Well, I mean, one of the things people do say about the Carry On films is that they're kind of terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a a very firm starting point. (laughs) Uh, In what way are they terrible? I would would ask them to pin down their points of offensiveness and uh, I would then have great pleasure and probably a very long evening in the pub breaking down those arguments one by one. So I think the onus for a franchise that is still... Britain's most successful franchise in terms of number of films and length of series. It competes with the likes of Hammer Horror. It competes with Bond on on those fronts. These films came in on budget, on time, and delighted millions and millions of people, not just in the UK, but across the world when they came out. So I would ask people to um, define their fighting terms, I guess. The onus is firmly on them. Well... I mean, there are, there are more than 30 of them, aren't there? I mean, you, I think you say in your introduction that, you know, there are more of them than there are Bonds. They were more profitable bit by bit than many more high-profile and critically acclaimed films. But when he was on Desert Island Discs, their great kind of impresario said, we've just made the same movie over and over again. <laughs> 
Well, he he was, I think he, yes, he spoke a truth, but I think in that same Desert Island disc, Peter Rogers, the impresario, the uberfuhrer who gazed over the whole thing, the compound, he didn't even let his stars have a star above the door, nor ever go through the gates of Pinewood to, dare I say it, film on location, crazy talk. He also said... You have to know your audience. And I think he made the analogy about you go into a sweet shop and you ask for toffees. You don't offer them some sort of rarefied butter mint. You give them toffees. And so, yes, I mean, perhaps he wasn't the most creative person, but I guess I would liken to it to a very small tennis court that with those lines and those rules uh, laid out, that was where the creativity flourished, was within those frameworks. When you think, yes, they did make the same film over and over again in terms of that overall structure, but when you go from the Roman Colosseums to the Wild West to contemporary England and what they sweetly call a marriage bureau, I imagine that would be called something else these days, you see that this is not the same film, whatever he might say, and be quite sort of dismissive about what was achieved. That, it, that again, even his own lines, even Peter Rogers' arguments don't stand up. Well, I mean, let's start with Peter Rogers, actually, because to the viewer, one of the interesting and revelatory parts of your book is realisation that actually, you know, the faces we associate with Carry On are, of course, you know, Barbara Windsor and Sid James and Hattie Jakes and all those others, but that, you know, the origins and the sort of engine of this show was three men who were completely behind the scenes. Yes, the unheralded heroes of the hour. So yes, we go back to the 1950s and Peter Rogers, who let's start with him. He is, he's the firm linchpin for sure. Uh, he was the husband of Betty Box, who was a, her own creative force. She heralded the Doctor in the House series. So you can see that he had quite a sort of something to match. He was in that creative environment. So he wanted his own series of something of similar distinction. He had the foresight. I mean, yes, probably by timing, by environment, by great luck, he recruited Gerald Thomas, his film editor turned fairly new director, a few stripes on his collar, but nothing too distinctive. And they then recruited this writer. I mean, these were all effectively guns for hire, Norman Hudis. And as you say, this trio of sort of, I guess, yes, newbies to the world. Nothing, nobody too established. We'd lost a huge number of our biggest stars, both in front and behind the camera to America in that decade. And this is what we were left with. And they thought, oh, well, we'll start with some sort of army caper. National service was was still in people's memories. It was an easy win. There was a TV series that covered the same material. And so they made a film that they were going to call The Bullingdon Boys. But then somebody suggested we... Uh, perhaps call it Carry On Sergeant. And off it went. And because it was on budget and on time and successful, they were given the chance to do it all over again, as Peter Rogers said. And Carry On Nurse turned up, which was an enormous hit, inexplicably, I have to say, with this ridiculous joke about the daffodil at the end, which caused raucous laughter in the aisles, not just in Britain, but in America. I, mean, I like the daff- daffodil joke. <laughs> Do you like the daffodil? Oh, well, that, I'm, I'm pleased. Perhaps, yes, we'll have to. Yes. But, and thus, history was born and the juggernaut that became the Carry On franchise sort of gathered some steam. So it was, it was early days, this, this bunch of men. We don't have people. This is one of the great delights of this book for me, which is that, in researching it, I should say, but hopefully reading it, is that... We don't have people like this anymore because we haven't had a recent war. These were men 
who, in terms of Norman Hudis and Gerald Thomas, were were serving men. They'd come back. They knew they were lucky. They got the chance to be creative, but they also had this great hinterland to refer to, particularly Norman, the writer. So when he started, he wrote the first six. And when he started out, he wrote about the army. He then wrote about Nurse, but that was really about the the blossoming NHS and some of its wonders, but also some of its pitfalls. Teacher covered education, constable covered the police force, regardless covered something which we would now call the gig economy. Goodness knows what they described it as in the 1950s. But he was writing of what he knew. He had a, a big tableau in, in front of him on which to park these extraordinary characters and then you then you put people like Kenneth Williams and Charles Hawtrey and later on Sid James in these environments and chaos and caperish magic ensues. How much can we take them seriously particularly those immediate post-war ones or, or mm. shortly post-war ones as as sort of social commentary I mean how keen were the writers to engage with what was going on in the country or or how much were they just you know if you like a kind of painted backdrop I think that they were possibly more by accident than design centrally placed as portraits of those environments so yes the primary intention was to make people laugh to pull in the punters and to ensure those cinema seats were filled on Saturday nights but because Norman Hudis was the man with the pen at that time, and he had served overseas. His wife was a nurse. He was plugged in. And so let's just take something like Carry On Nurse. The NHS was in its first few years, and there were these great social hierarchies that, of course, are still around today, but perhaps were even more pointed and less scrutinised then. But he made the jokes. So you've got somebody like Hattie Jakes very early on saying mischief for women particularly, this was the the implication, is a form of self-expression. The nurses, it was clear, knew far more about what was going on in the hospitals than the doctors, but the doctors were men and more senior and more highly paid and had authority that they then tried to abuse. But these balloons, these illusions of hierarchy and grandeur were constantly pinned and the balloons were sort of allowed to explode in in the obviously the narrative was the caper but it was the little men who caused the chaos but also rescued the chaos and very often over and over again it is actually the female characters who come to the rescue and are always the superior beings so so there's a lot of things about institutions that he's making the point i think really i guess it's a it's a class portrait is the is the spine of those films and he clearly favours the hard-working man, not the, not the man with the badge, with the, with the military badge, with the police badge, with the authority, with the surgeon's stethoscope. You know, he, he wants to both sort of revel in the caperish nonsense, but also the earnest endeavour and the comradeship, above all things, of your ordinary Joe. Yeah, I mean, that, that thing of comradeship, I think one of the interesting points that you make in in this book is that saying look you know th- there was no star bigger than the franchise the franchise itself yeah. was the star so it's absolutely about the ensemble and and there's some funny stuff about how charlie hawtrey was always getting ideas above his station and getting viciously slapped down <laughs> yes i mean is is it a sort of era of film because nowadays we're so embedded in a sort of stars have to open films 
kind of could you make something that's as, as dependent on, on the ensemble as this, do you think? I think it's one of the two major problems with anybody who has ideas about bringing something like this back or even creating something of its size and status. So, yes, because of Peter Rogers' almost firm headmaster's whip, I mean, there's a lot of con- controversy about just how much he wielded that in terms of pay, which I I almost was nervous about going into because it's it's caused so many ripples over the last five decades. But yes, as you say, Charles Hawtrey was the one who made the mistake because he got such good reviews that a critic said, oh, a film without Charles Hawtrey, a, tra- a carry-on film would be unthinkable. And of course, this meant he went skipping off to Peter Rogers, demanding a, a pay rise and a star above his dressing room door for carry-on cruising. And the result was that he was promptly sacked from that film. And so we saw Lance Percival taking the role of the chef, which was originally meant for Charles Hawtrey. So I think that became a, a very firm disincentive to anybody who, who might might have had ideas but it was effectively a repertory company I mean yes we had our our linchpins we had those central stars without whom this series would have absolutely died on the vine because of the familiarity of those characters both in terms of the characters they played but also the actors who played them became much loved very familiar very comforting presences these days stars know their worth both for good and for bad And that would mean that if you were to try and to uh, perhaps recruit, you might get lucky. I mean, in the 80s, Francis Ford Coppola did it with The Outsiders, didn't he? He did it with Tom Cruise and Patrick Swayze and Matt Dillon. And people have had great fun for the last 30 years of trying to work out how much it would have cost at various times to recruit that same ensemble. I think it's similar for something like this. So if you were to have the absolute stroke of good fortune to get some really funny comedy boned actors of which there are very few I mean what what are we talking sort of Adam Sandler I mean I'm I'm having to struggle I mean they as they struggled in 1992 with Carry On Columbus but who is a really funny comedy actor as opposed to a comedian I'm not sure they exist in the same way sitcoms have have gone by the way funny films they are paid in the millions. And of course, they become producers of those franchises. When they, If they get a good one, the, the stars know to cling on to it and to ride that bus themselves. So they, they, nobody is in thrall to a, a Peter Rogers figure saying, get back here for, for the second film this year or you're out. Um, as I say, both for good and for bad. This, is, this just wouldn't happen. Yeah, no, that... that... <laughs> The pay issue—I know you said you you hedged around it a bit, but it yes. it is quite startling. And I mean, Barbara Windsor, who, good lord, according to your book, has a, had a fantastically salty mouth on her, had quite—you know—she she put it very eloquently to Peter Rogers by accident, didn't she? Yes, she did. Yes, on the on the scene. Um, I mean, it's a very famous scene for so many reasons, which hopefully we'll get to. But carry on camping where the grass was being painted green and leaves were being added to the trees. The budget was minimal. And as Barbara Windsor, who was standing in the rain in a bikini, quite clearly had had enough of all this, that the stark budget that they were being allowed, and clearly the stars were not getting the benefit. I think they were lucky to get a tea break. And then she said, yes, Peter Rogers, here we are all standing in our mud in our undies. And then Peter Rogers turns up effectively in his Rolls Royce, and uh, to say hello to everybody. And there he is in the marmalade. And of course, what happened was that she was still mic'd up when she said this, what was meant to be a sotto voce aside to Kenneth Williams. 
Perhaps Kenneth Williams' history does not record definitively whether Kenneth Williams knew that this was being recorded, but he kept egging her on and she got more and more carried away about how unfair this all was until that evening's rushes were played out and Peter Rogers seemed to delight in inviting everybody to the screening room. And of course, there was Babs in all her glory on the audio, word for word. And she said she went pink between her ears. And then, uh, yes, Peter Rogers, well, what happened about a few weeks later, Barbara Windsor was delivered of a Fortnum and Mason hamper, including marmalade. So, I mean, yes, it's it's for sure that Peter Rogers had shared the sense of humour of his cast, but that he never wanted there to be any mistake about who was the boss. Yeah. And that, you know, Kenneth Williams egging her on, you know, this ensemble cast, it does seem... Given, even though they had these incredibly prickly characters, you know, sort of alcoholic Charles Hawtrey, extraordinarily troubled and difficult Kenneth Williams, you know, these characters, they did seem to gel, didn't they? I mean, was there no needle, no rivalry, no bitchiness between them? They all seemed to get on. I think that they were just by chance, again, great casting, great decisions made by Peter Rogers and Gerald Thomas, who really did form, uh, by the way, because Newman, Norman Hudis went by the wayside and a, a writer, another writer came along, Talbot Rothwell. But really the, the men steering this ship were Peter and Gerald. But they cast these people, they saw something in them. Now, whether there was, as well as the comedy bones, the great timing, which had been really honed on the West End stage in a bunch of films before, they all knew exactly what they were doing. They didn't have to train anybody. They came as full creative beings. But I'm not sure that they were necessarily completely formed personal beings. They all had their demons. I mean, many plays and different biopics have taken great delight relishing in this kind of funny, on-screen, terribly upset, depressed, as you say, alcoholic in Charles Hawtrey's case, Kenneth Williams, very troubled, never a happily out gay man. Hattie Jakes had this very complicated marriage and then affair with her her great uh, well what who became her great friend John Le Mazurier. Sid James you know there have been stories written about him I mean he seemed to be the most settled but even he was just wanting to work he had no sort of takes above his station Jim Dale I think I, I mean I gave him a special seven place in the book he which I'm not sure in terms of actual number of films he merited but I think he did take he took the films in this brand new direction as this young hero so he definitely got an inclusion we know Barbara Windsor had these un simple marriages culminating in Ronnie her errant husband being arrested all sorts of things were going on and I think that they found consolation in each other they, they I don't think there was an ego there. If there was, it was batted into shape by Peter. But they came with their problems. And I think the reason, as much as because it was fun to do that they came back over and over again, was the great family they found at Pinewood that perhaps they were missing. I mean, with exceptions, Sid James was a very happy family man, but they got something from it. There was a a comfort and a familiarity for them just as much as they provided for us over and over again. Uh, and one of them, it was an intriguing note, I don't think you gave him a spotlight chapter to his own, but Bernard Breslau, you say he was sitting teaching himself Greek, you know, this great oafish sort of lunk. Oh, I know. He was teaching himself Greek in between the... Yes, he was he, I think it was it well. Mandarin or something, yes. He, I mean, he was a very Mandarin, cultured man. Mandarin, sorry, it was Mandarin. Yes, God. and, um, and a, a friend of mine 
had booked that. Unfortunately, he was one that died prematurely as well and had a ticket to see him in a Shakespeare play at Regent's Park, you know, one of these open air ones, the, the day he died, that my friend was due to go and see him. So I was very disappointed. And I said, hang on, you know how sometimes you get those two actors with the same names and they have to put a middle name in? And I had no idea years ago that this was the same Bernard Breslau has the person saying, I dreamt about you last, last night, nurse, did you? No, you wouldn't let me. But he, again, found something in them. I think in a way that perhaps we don't appreciate now, there wasn't as much quality work. Salaries weren't as high and as competitive for, for act, you know, for, for famous, what they call, you know, the talent. They have op- options now. They can go up or down. They can go to stage or TV. They can go off to America for a bit if it works out. You know, they, we see stars disappearing off, don't we? Sort of British TV stars suddenly are in these long-running US franchises. The money is huge. They can open a play if they choose to come back. They didn't have those options then. And I, so I think even for somebody as cultured and as, as you say, slightly out of the mould of the others as Bernard Breslau, it was uh, a very familiar and attractive prospect to be one of the returning stars. Yeah, one of the things you say is that, contra the sort of impression that the films give with their kind of low-budget look and their, you know, you, you kind of look at them and you think, oh, these, these seem kind of amateurish. But actually the performers were anything but. Yes, and I think that was one thing that the, the filmmakers were able to rely on so that that's what kept those budgets so tight Sid James talks about the first time that he made a scene in uh, Carry On Constable, I think, and he fell down the stairs. And he said to Gerald Thomas, oh, oh, don't worry, I can do that again. And he said, don't worry, dear boy, I've already worked out where to cut it in my head. So they had this great luxury of this incredibly skilled, working on the hoof, Gerald Thomas, who had been an editor. So he could could make these decisions in his head. So immediately, that's a whole load of cutting room floor uh, wastage gone. I mean, this has been one of the, really fun in a way, but researching it and looking for outtakes there are very, very, very few. I mean, one person, uh, Angela Douglas, she said she was making, I think, Follow That Camel or one of the old cowboy. And she said, oh, I said to Joel Thomas, OK, oh, I might have to do that again. And he said, oh, OK, well, you've, you've had your second take now. It was almost as though each actor was afforded one, the luxury of one second take each, but that was it. But they, they hit their spots. And as, again, they were well-trained racehorses. And they just got them on the course and they knew what they would, were able to do. And I think that was, what, that was what brought these films in on budget, on time, over and over again, even looking like something as ambitious as Carry On Up the Khyber. They still managed to pull it off. Though actually, as you say, you know, putting the money where, where the important bit is, you seem to imply that the Barbara Windsor bra scene, which of course is the thing that everybody remembers, took 20 or 30 takes. Well, that was because of a technical challenge, which was the uh, the fisherman's hook on the brazier. So, uh, I mean, it's it's a delightful. It's been told so many times, but it it's kind of funnier now in the retelling. Apparently, Barbara said, "Well, who's going to be doing it? Who is this person who's going to be pulling off my my top underwear, my upstairs underwear?" And they said, "Oh, it's." It's an old fella. He's retiring next week. <laughs> Barbara, being Barbara Windsor, said, oh, oh, he can do that. That's all right. <laughs> she 
she had no pretensions. Can you imagine the uh, the intimacy coordination that would be required these days? So yes, yeah, so this went on and on, and so every time it sort of they either overpulled and she fell in the mud, or they underpulled and the thing didn't come off. And then finally, I think the sun was setting. I think everybody was getting a bit fed up, but it did finally ping off in the right direction, and history was made. Now, as you've mentioned earlier. There was a change of writers. I mean, you know, one of the important things about this series has been that the writers, as it went on, knew who they were writing for. You know, you, there, there was a sort of synergy between the, what's now would be called the writer's room and the cast, because you'd know how ah, this line will work for Sid, this, this character's going to... You know, they, yes. The, the actors yes. became the characters, stock characters as they were. But there was this moment, I think, end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, when Norman Hudis gave way to Talbot Rothwell... How did that change the direction of the series? Because, you know, we all think of them as a monolith. Mm. And actually, as you say, they, they changed a lot in the course of the 30 yeah, or 40 so, years that are being made. Sure. So Norman Hoodis eventually passed on the baton. It was actually earlier than that. It was right back. His last film was Carry On Cruising, 1962. He kind of ran out of institutions. He said himself, I, I wrote of what I knew and it seemed that he he kind of he'd hit all the big spots he'd hit the army and teaching and police and as i said this gig economy he he just kind of ran out of steam and peter rogers clearly wanted to take it in a slightly more ambitious direction and talbot rothwell became his main man his man with the pen and talbot rothwell was just described by gerald thomas as some sort of walking joke book he could just turn his it, it, some people have these don't they we we know that people like Dennis Norden and Frank Muir, who in fact, as uh, I hope you read, that actually did create the infamy line. It was those two. But I guess it's almost like, do you remember the, is it the the Brill building where those musicians could turn a tune? And I think that these writers were similar, that they could they could just turn a gag. I mean, what a thing. I mean, Barry Cryer, of course, much loved and lost, is one of those people as well. So a whole you're series a Monkhouse of people. Super fan, I think you mentioned in the book. So. I am a, I thank you. I am an absolute Monkhouse Super fan. Yeah, well, there we go. The, the, the shining example. So almost like a science, you know, like craftsmen. This was their factory and he went in. But somehow, I guess, without the budgets really creeping up in any great sort of Marvel compound way, they just kind of got bigger and bigger. So I think it was Peter Rogers. Um, he bumped into Cubby Broccoli in the canteen at Pinewood and said, and Cubby Broccoli said, I thought I might make a comedy about spying. And of course, Peter Rogers, ever droll and competitive, said, I thought you just already had. But I think things like that happened. I think that these films like Carry On Clio came out purely of the fact that the Cleopatra, the disastrous, huge 20th century fox, thing that was Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, that that had gone on over budget and gone on for so long because of Elizabeth Taylor's proclivities, that they had these costumes lying around at Pinewood and I think they bought some stage set from a London production and suddenly they had Carry On Cleo. I think Carry On Cowboy, which is one of my favourites, came out of the popularity of those huge spaghetti westerns that came along later, but also the Wild West had become rich Hollywood material. So as long as there were new things to turn up and inspire spoof and parody, they kind of had a, a ready mix of a new bucket of material that they could keep dipping their hands into. And of course, this served them very well right throughout the decade, culminating in Carry On Up the Khyber, which is really quite extraordinary and quite deservedly remains in the BFI's top 100 films because 
as I say, do um, I think I say in the book they they set out to entertain, but they ended up sort of painting this extraordinary end of the empire portrait, but uh, in all its satire. I mean, Python, I don't think ever achieved anything quite on this scale, and I don't know if it would be made now. It would be deemed far too controversial. Well, that's I mean, the, I'm sort of interested in the politics of the the movies. You know, a political magazine. You know. Do, do they have a decipherable kind of political position? I mean, I'm leaving aside, which I guess we'll get on to, the sort of modern concerns with what, you know, representation and council culture and, you know, what sometimes gets called political correctness. But, I mean, in terms of the sort of broader worldview, I mean, I think you said there's, there's one of the carry-ons, which, which is all about union versus... Union versus management. Yes, carry on at your convenience, of course. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, when they look at something like the NHS, when they, you know, have people said, actually, these are a profoundly conservative art form, or they're a, a profoundly anti-hierarchical. I mean, you know, what, what's, how do you read them? What's the take? I think Peter Rogers. I would not have him down as a socialist. <laughs> I would see him as a traditional character and therefore filmmaker. But equally, he wasn't a snob. He knew his audience and he knew if you if you want to fill just as you want, if you want to fill a Christmas Day schedule, you put Mrs. Brown's boys on and then lots of commentators will who and ha and be very upset about this when I don't know if they were expecting a sort of a new George Eliot adaptation or something on Christmas night. Equally in cinemas, if you want to fill cinemas and make them feel happy and come back for more, you give them something familiar, something that crosses all the strata of society. And I think that's what these films achieved. So if there is a political view, while he isn't, as I say, a sort of a raving Marxist or socialist, I think he celebrated, uh, what's the phrase? The working man, the not too ambitious man. I mean, of course, working life was... Working place. Yes, of course. Yes, the definition of nostalgia. But... I think life was a bit easier and simpler pre-80s, pre the great capitalist and globalist burst that we saw in the last 30 years. Prior to that, people, if they worked hard and they went to their job and unemployment was very high, then they had enough money to have a detached house in the suburbs or a semi-detached house with a family car and they could go on holiday once perhaps twice a year particularly if you included a camping holiday and people were happy with their lot and of course that lasted the great revolution was the cultural revolution in the 1960s not the economic one so everyone was busy dealing with those funny folk those hippies those those girls in those short skirts you know this was all going on but in terms of politics it was a celebration of everyday pleasures and nonsense and desires and whims and challenges and making great fun with that. So it, he, he wrote of, well, certainly Talbot Rothwell wrote of what he knew and those characters came along and played that. Well, that, that point you make about, you know, the 80s and the 90s and the sort of birth globalisation, I mean, one of the you know, blatantly obvious things about Carry On is how incredibly British they are. But yes. is the... Britishness that they encapsulate, you know, of the suburban semi and the camping holiday. Mm -hmm. Is that something that that has become sort of impossible to reproduce because it's vanished? 
I mean, were they nostalgic in their own day? No, I don't think they were nostalgic in their own day. I think that they were absolutely, they were simple. They got out of their own way. They didn't try to deliberately paint anything. They just looked around and the budgets determined what they filmed. And so instead of going to some big grand house or finding a location, they literally, for something like Carry On At Your Convenience, the houses or camping in the early 70s and late 60s, they were basically the nearest films that they could locate near Ivor Heath, near the studio. And so that determined what the portrait was. But, sorry, I I, I, I was going to say Britishness was more than just the locations. I mean, in the sense that, as you said, class is absolutely shot through it, like the lettering for a stick of rock. And that particular, well, it feels pretty British, sense that, you know, all these middle-aged men, you know, lusting after the sexual revolution and, and always ending up, you know, going off in the back of a, you know, Morris Minor feeling a bit <laughs> glum, um, but put but, in their but, place. But actually feeling much safer with their desires not being matched by their actions. I delight in the Britishness of these films. I think that wonderful space, it's a space that, that had, where had two things are going on. So... First of all, the space, because we have this British, very un-European sense of what we can't say. We can't express ourselves like passionate Mediterranean glamorous folk. We have these pent-up desires. And so these films delighted in operating. There's a sort of triangulation between the characters and what they, well, the actors who we know very well have been, there's a lovely comforting presence with all these faces returning. Then the characters who sort of go through the pantomime of having these desires and pent up frustrations and whims and all these as, you know, the capers, the caperish aspect, romantic and also mischievous, but also the audience. So it's what they can't say. And that's the Britishness. That's where it's, it's the limitation. It's the cap on the, of the steaming pot is always there. And that's where the, the, the delightful tension and comedy comes from. Equally, I think there is an expressed ambition, but there's also a fear in straying too far from the herd. And that, again, I feel is slightly British. I mean, we see it in, in a negative way many, many times. We've seen that manifest. But at its best, it's about, well, it's something like Carry On Abroad, yet they stray from their comfort zone. They, they branch out, they get on the bus and they're off to the, the Spanish resort where nothing works. But the great comfort is in coming back home and talking about it in the pub. And I, I think that that really taps into something that we all instinctively feel. And I think they give voice to that. So when they, you know, when things, more things became sayable, did they lose their basic Mojo. When more things became sayable was one of Carry On's great, great challenges because other films came along that didn't have the the legacy that they had to somehow keep safe. And so suddenly they found themselves competing with all sorts of things like the Confessions films in the cinema and O Calcutta and things like that on stage. So suddenly other people were free to let it all hang out because they came along as these new things. And of course, Carry On had to somehow keep those those familiar tropes that had secured those audiences, but adapt. And as Matthew Sweet says in my book, it was like watching middle-aged men crawl out of a nightclub where it's all been quite fun in the shadows overnight, but crawling out into the daylight 
of the morning after. We, we've all known that horrible feeling. I said, was it like having a sort of a, a dad disco dancing at the school disco? And he said, it was worse. <laughs> That's where we stopped, because it was too painful, because we're both fans of the films, and it was too painful to see that that battle. I think the walls were closing in on them. The actors were getting older. The familiar actors we knew and loved were getting older and either leaving or looking more and more inappropriate. Joan Sims being shoehorned into her uniform for Carry On England when she'd been such a beautiful, sort of seductive diva a a decade earlier in Carry On Cowboy was a very depressing sight, which she said herself. She said, oh, just go home, love, put your feet up. And I think that battle, they were just running out of track. I think the end at that point became inevitable. So their magic period was that space when they, with the innuendo, and suddenly there was no need for innuendo. Yeah, you have a very poignant description of Barbara Windsor. You know, she got sent the script for Carry On Emmanuel. And, I mean, her reaction was what? Her reaction was, this isn't the magic that we used to have. And she phoned her friends. She phoned Bernard Breslau, whose opinion she valued. And she said, what do you think? And he said, no, I'm going to leave it. So, in fact, for a lot of them, their final film was Carry On Dick in 1974 all about Dick Turpin, I should add. And I think they just wanted to leave it there. They had the sense. Perhaps it wasn't. I don't I don't think it was with one eye on their own legacy. I think it was more just, would they enjoy this? And I, I think they realised that instinctively they wouldn't. I mean, Barbara Windsor had this great giggle that delighted people, but I think it delighted herself. And I don't think she would have felt any delight carrying on with the series as it got thinner and thinner. So is Carry On Dick where it should have ended, in your opinion? I think probably Carry On Abroad, 72. Carry On Girls was interesting because of all the the incredible portraiture of women figures, different women figures, which I painfully go through in my book to prove, to to disprove all those people accusing these films of sexism. Carry On Girls, I think, is where they prove once and for all that they are not sexist. But probably Carry On Dick should have been goodbye. And certainly... Carry On England and Carry On Emmanuel were films that I think, humbly, should never have been made. Yes, actually, in Carry On Girls, you, you say that there's seven named speaking, you know, female speaking mm. lead roles intended, I mean, or at least, well, I'd be interested to know whether you think it's intentional, each one representing a different facet of contemporary feminism, which certainly <laughs> doesn't sound like a kind of Carry On plan. No, that doesn't sound like your average description of a carry-on film, for sure. I think, uh, yes, and more so that it was just a mirror of what society was doing, was recognising we saw as early on in films like Carry On Cabbie back in 63 that women were not content just to sit at home and cook their husband dinners anymore and wait for them to come in from their cab firm working day, that they, they felt it was time to to stride out and do something for themselves. I mean, here we are a decade later and we've got in that film, we have a hotel owner. We have Joan Sims. We have June Whitfield playing a a leading woman's lib activist. We have models. We have secretaries who... I mean, it's Valerie Leon and she's an utter beauty and she whips off her glasses, brackets models own, she told me, to kind of, I, I guess, 
sort of take the mickey out of that trope. We have the mayor's wife, who is not content to be her, his downtrodden plus one anymore and joins the woman's libbers, much to his discontent. You see, it's all going on, but this was all going on in society. So I don't think that they were necessarily trying to push the bar forward in that way, but I think they were very happy and respectful about painting society as it was changing. Now, now I just want to end by asking you, because you've got a personal story in here which is very touching, which is your personal encounter as a child with Barbara Windsor. I know. Who'd have thought? My mother was laughing about this yesterday. She said, people seem to really like that Barbara Windsor story. Who would have thought when when it happened that it would make it to print so many years later? So yes, back in, I think, gosh, 1980, I went with my family to Richmond Theatre for the annual outing to the pantomime. And in fact, one of my father's dear friends, Bernie, was King Rat. I mean, the Dizzy Heights. So I turned up and Barbara Windsor was on stage and she turned up and there was a standing ovation for her. And I thought, blimey, is this what happens when principal boys turn up on stage? And so I thought this was the norm. Um, People were very, very appreciative of her. And then she sang a song and she seemed to get a little bit tearful. I remember it very clearly. It was a very striking image. You can imagine this very familiar figure from TV and film suddenly in front of you and seeming quite emotional. And then afterwards, we went backstage to see my father's friend and he was in her dressing room and effectively sort of tending to her, handing her tissues and looking after her. So we stood there rather nervously and then Bernie said to Barbara, well, these are my friends. This is young Caroline. And I said, but your hair's different. She was smiley. She was wiping her tears and and I said, well, your hair's different. And she said, oh, it's a wig, love. Nothing's real in this life. Would you like to try it on? So we went through this lovely moment where I was wearing Babs's wig, aged eight. And then, of course, I read her memoir years later, just before I started, sat down and wrote this book. And that very night, that very same night that she was appearing on stage at Richmond Theatre was the same day that errant husband Ronnie Knight had been arrested. And she was terrified about how how the crowd would receive her. And of course, she got this standing ovation of, of sympathy, as I discovered. And there she was in her dressing room. Her husband's been arrested. She's on the front pages of all the newspapers and she's letting an eight-year-old try on her wig. And I spoke to Tony Jordan, who wrote EastEnders for her, her role of Peggy. And he was very moved by that story, as was I. And he said, that's so Barbara. Anyone else, the door would have been closed and she would have been in the cab. But... Barbara, not Barbara. She she would have been very happy speaking to an eight-year-old. So, yes. Carrying on, in fact. Caroline Frost, thanks very much indeed. listening to the spectators books podcast very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you 